Where am I from? Yeah. So let's see. So my name's Marie. Oh, Marie. That's you've been saying. I'm saying right? that correctly. Yeah, okay. you've been doing a okay. good job. I was just repeating. I think. Okay. Buying a little bit of time to think, maybe. <laughs> yeah. So I've been in LA for about 13 years. Yeah. But I come from the Midwest, so I come from a really small town, and my grandfather was a conservationist. So every time that I would go visit him, which was often, our visits would always start out with a walk outside and it didn't really matter if it was sleet or rain, whatever might have been the weather, we went walking. And he taught me a lot of the plants and animals in Missouri, which is a very small fraction of what's here. I'm still trying to sort of learn the fauna of California. Hold on, Can, is that is that AC that I'm hearing? The uh, yeah, it's the building. It's the building's AC. Okay. Yeah, because this one is the. Got you. Uh, so for the listeners, if you hear, uh, or that's it's the building AC. It's out <laughs> of our control. Uh, I didn't want to interrupt you, but I, I had to. I was like, I'm looking at the meter. I'm like, why is it still jumping? Okay. Yeah, no worries. It has to be technologically sound absolutely but we're good so your father's a conservationist you're from a small town what small town my grandfather is a conservationist okay. it's in missouri oh uh, what, what, what city what, what town why specifically are you from Be, missouri well i because i realized that like there's so many people who are from small towns and from small cities and and a lot of people respond in kind of the way you do where like people never name it, but there but there are other people from that town, that city. And then for somebody to be like, you know, I'm from that town, it could be a listener that's like, I'm from that town, you know? And it's like it's it's just a way of connecting because we all have these parts of ourselves that we think aren't, I feel like aren't big enough to share. It's like I'm from Chicago. Yeah. So when I say Chicago, there's and people from Chicago are like, I'm from Chicago. This is pride. But like if you're from a small town outside of Chicago, people don't know. Then you could hear them be like, well, I'm, gonna, I'm from a city outside of Chicago. You know, instead of just saying the city. It's like, these are great. These are great places. Yeah, I think for me, part of it comes from probably my background in therapy mm. and and Jungian psychology specifically, which is very much... I'm removed from the experience of the client. So it I don't actually do my own personal therapy with my clients in that way. Over time, they do get to know me, and I have a little bit more of a gestalt approach to not needing to be a blank slate, sort of. But I think that that becomes natural, especially since we're sitting in my office. Yeah, and so... Right. It becomes a very sort of me moving around the specific questions about my myself. Gotcha. Gotcha. But I feel proud to be from a small town. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's informed a lot of the way that I even look at the city. Uh-huh. And there's the and I don't mean to be this person who just does all the quote thing, but Andy Goldsworthy is a sort of eco artist, 
where he goes in and he makes these very fragile piece, pieces of artwork in nature out of leaves and streams or ice or rocks balancing. And he has a quote about the city being nature too. And I feel like that quote really hit me. I think I read that quote when I was in undergrad. And I feel like that's how I try to respond to being in LA, but being sort of a small town girl, if that makes sense. I love that, the city being a uh, part of nature also. Can, can you expound on that? Because cause I'm realizing like when I do think of nature, it's always like getting out the city. And it's like, I can't wait to get out the city and into nature. But the city is a part of uh, nature, right? I'm listening to this audio book. Uh, it's called uh, The World in a Grain. And it's talking about sand and how we use sand for everything, from uh, making cell phones to, to computer chips to glass to uh, you know microwaves and cars and things like that, it all is rooted in sand. And when I and, and tying into what you're saying is that like the city is nature. It's like oh yeah, everything is pretty much made from sand, or a lot of things are made. So like nature is all around us. Is just like recognizing it, right? But uh, can you talk to me about more of what that means to you in terms of the city is nature? Yeah, obviously it was first Goldsworthy's quote, and so I'm not exactly sure his full intentions behind it. Right. But for me, it you encapsulated it with what you just said, which is that we have all of these things available to us. You know, when we step out of our door, there's a sky and there's a ground and there's air to breathe and all of the things, it's almost as though instead of them being separate, we're a part of the other thing. We're just a different type of. This This is actually funny because I, I, went, I went hiking. I actually climbed Mount Whitney last week. Congratulations. Thank you. It was pretty amazing. But there were marmots there. So there's actually yellow-bellied marmots. What is that? A, what is that? A marmot. See, this is the this is the thing. So marmots are Okay, so they're basically like groundhogs. They And so this is what I'm trying to say is that a groundhog is a type of marmot. But there's lots of different types of marmots. So whenever we saw the marmot, my partner who had ever seen a marmot before was sort of shocked about this large squirrel thing. And I said, oh, that's a marmot. And they were like, what is a marmot? And is it a groundhog? And so that spun us down when we got back off the mountain, this whole research into marmots and groundhogs and you know, being being one of or a type of, but being different. And so I think that that's what I'm, that's the metaphor I'm trying to say about the city being nature too. It's a type of nature, but you know, you have the forest, you have the rainforest, you have the beach. They're all different types of nature and with different landscapes. And you need different, if you're going to camp in them, you need different equipment. And so that's that's the city for me. 
That, that makes so much sense because when I think of kids, kids have no problem with setting up a tent in the living room. You know, and they, they put everything in there that they need, and they got the little flashlight, and, you know, they set up the, they got the, uh, the sleeping bag, and, they, you know, they bring in their snacks and their s'mores or whatever. And in their head, they're, they're in nature. They're outdoors. They're in an entirely different world. And uh, so, yeah, it's, it's, it makes sense that nature would just be, it's, it's more about your perspective of getting away versus actually having to get away, kind of like a staycation even. Um, yeah. Well, maybe if we looked at it more like that, exactly like you said about kids, and if we looked at it more like this, I don't have to leave this detested place to get to the place that will make me feel the calm, then maybe then we would look around us and make little adjustments, right? If, if everyone was sort of looking around them in ways to make this more stable now, then maybe we would convert little pieces of patches of grass or sidewalks or into something more actually livable instead of tolerating it until we can get to the next space. Does that make that sense? That absolutely makes sense. Uh, I'm right now uh, trying to redesign my room and I want to bring in, I want a bookshelf because I have a million books, but I want to make a tree bookshelf. Like I want an actual tree trunk in my room and but carved out to put books in there. And I'm trying to figure out how to do it. Uh, like, you know, that idea of bringing nature indoors do you have um, other ideas or examples about how people or how you have brought nature indoors and made your space um, as you say livable more livable yeah that's a big question so I think for me I live very simply so there's it within my space there's a lot of sort of light and air and space and I also try to eat very wholesomely so I one of my therapeutic things to calm myself down or ground myself is to cook and a lot of you know basic from scratch foods and so having a lot of real sort of living foods that I'm touching and and in my space also helps to give me that sort of connection. I do have a lot of plants in my apartment and I also have worms, which I have in a mid-century modern pot. So it's not a traditional worm bin, but when I was looking at what you needed, I thought that that would work. I sealed the bottom up with some cement and found a wooden plate that fit on the top and it's lifted off the floor so there's no moisture on the floor and so I feed my worms. So that's a thing. I can't have pets where I'm at, but But you can have worms. But I can have worms. <laughs> you found a loophole. Yeah. Uh, now, why do we have worms? Is that for compost? It's for compost. Yes. So it it just sort of it it makes me feel sort of with the getting the whole grains and fruits and vegetables and bringing them in and making things from scratch. 
which like I said, is kind of therapeutic for me, but then also being able to, instead of take taking the cores or the skins or the seeds and throwing them out, being able to give them to my little pets. Yeah, your little colony. It feels <laughs> it feels more wholesome. If Wait, that makes sense. So when you say pet, are you naming the worms? Do you have a name for each worm? Definitely not. That would be <laughs> I didn't know almost impossible. <laughs> uh, all right. So I'm, I'm all right now. I'm super fascinated. Uh, I have a million questions right now. Okay, and, I'll um, see. Can I can I do sort of pass pass? Okay, on the questions on the million. Uh, well, I'm not sure. What you're, <laughs> I don't know what that means. Like when you ask a question, can I say pass and then go to the next one? I mean, because we have a million, so that's gonna. Oh, oh yeah. Sorry, my yeah. humor sometimes <laughs> is. Uh, yeah. It's not. No, yeah. It's, uh, I, I like to exaggerate. When I say a million, I really mean like 999. Hundred thousand. Okay, um, I'm ready. The worms, because I just bought some pineapple today. Like yes. I, I like to buy the fresh pineapple because being eco friendly, the the pre cut, all that plastic. I just think about all the plastic that comes with buying pre cut uh, fruits and vegetables. Uh, so I bought the whole, and plus I just like taking a knife and cutting things up. And like you said, getting in there with your hands is just something. Um, uh, visceral about just cutting things, slicing them, you know, whatever, and, and making something with your hands. Uh, but as I was throwing away the pineapple skin, I remember my mom used to soak it and make pineapple juice with the pineapple skin. Mm. But I was like, that's too sweet for me. But I felt so bad. I was like, I need to start a compost. I was literally thinking this morning, I want to do a compost, but I wasn't sure how to do it. But now you're saying buy worms put them in a little and just throw your stuff in there with the worms. Yeah, that's probably, that's what I ended up doing because I had the pot. It seemed suitable. I definitely know that there are, I actually wish I knew the name of it because it's this, this sort of mom and pop, they build them themselves. But there are these sort of wooden five-tiered ones that you can also get that I have a few friends that have that you can have inside also. So because the one problem with the method that I'm doing is that whenever it's time to get the worms out of the compost, it's going to be a little bit more difficult for me because with the tiered system, you just stop feeding them in one tray and then you put the food in another tray and there's mesh between them and the worms will just crawl their way down into the... Uh into the other tray but my way is gonna i haven't gotten there yet but once i do maybe i'll let you know and you said there's a a company or two people who make that tiered i believe it's a i believe it's a couple and okay. i've had a lot of friends buy them off of etsy and they're really i just don't remember the name of the company well we're gonna find out and i'm gonna put that in the show notes because i'm definitely getting one i i'm so excited because I, I have so much guilt around throwing out all the skin and stuff that I have. And, and all the fruit flies coming in. I'm like, I want to feed more of you. but uh, <laughs> So this will be a way. Um, and the other thing I wanted to uh, expound on is the idea of uh, cooking with your hands. And, and how you said that grounds you. Can you talk more about that and then maybe other things you do that ground you because I'm, I'm definitely out I'm, I'm up in the clouds all the time um, 
And if you could speak more to that. Yeah, so actually, I have a lot I could say about that. So I am, so I have sort of sensory processing issues. It's not a big deal as an adult. Usually adults aren't diagnosed with this. Children are, and it's called sensory processing disorder. So I had worked with a lot of kids. I work with a lot of adults now, but also some kids. But a lot of my training was with children. And this sensory processing disorder is just sort of these kids getting way too overwhelmed, way too stimulated, needing a lot of silence, a lot of stillness, a lot of sort of containment. And I was one of those kids. And so I think just naturally I would go into nature. I would find things to do with my hands, whether that be handicrafts. We mentioned crocheting just before we got on and then cooking. And so it is one of the ways in which if my mind is spinning or my body sort of buzzing from stimulation, I can at this point, because I've been cooking for so long, I can go look, see what I have and just start something. And I find that after a while of, of working with the food, my mind and my body sort of come to an equilibrium and connect again. And, and I'm more grounded, like you said. And I can actually also say an antidote, which is I, ha I moved to LA in a partnership, which ended. And that was really painful for me. This was over 10 years ago. And I was dealing with a lot of intense grief, but also sort of anger. And it was about that time that I learned how to bake bread. And I learned how to bake, which actually, just so you know, you should Google this, you can make a starter from pineapple juice for bread. That's one of the ways that you can make your own starter. You don't have to go out and buy it. I made a starter from pineapple juice, starter which is a really a weird way to tie both of these stories in. A starter is the yeast colony that you use to make your bread rice. Oh, I'm Googling it right. You're Googling it right now, using pineapple juice to make a yeast pineapple. culture. Oh, okay. Yeah. Pineapple juice. So I was making whole wheat bread because I try to be as healthy as possible. And whole wheat bread, you have to knead for about 30 minutes. And so at that time in my life, I was making maybe a loaf of bread a day and just kneading it for 30 minutes and putting my weight into it. And that was incredibly therapeutic. It was a very good sort of energy, anger, force, I mean, I don't think that I would s sit and or stand. I would always stand and knead bread for 30 minutes anymore, you know. But at right. that time, it was just a thing that I did. So, and, and to get into your body, you know, I, I found that, you know, because you talked about using it as a way to uh, channel the anger, channel the grief. And uh, in, a, in past in relationships, when I've gotten into arguments, uh, kickboxing. Or, you know, hitting, going to the gym 
was always a great way for me to uh, center myself and then be like, oh, that's not such a big, it's not, the, it's not the, the thing that I, it's not as big as I thought it was, you know. Yes. And then I can come back and have uh, uh, a neutral con- or an objective conversation. Um, yeah, and I, and I think that's what, like, when I, when I think about the kids today, because they've taken um, recess out of so many schools, and kids aren't allowed to, you know, they have to wake up early or to go to school, and then they're staying later, and there's really not a time for them to get, get into their bodies and express. I mean, you see, like, these more non-traditional schools starting to incorporate yoga and things like that, but most schools, the, the public schools, um, the kids are just, you know, in these dark classrooms for most of the day, and, uh, and they don't get a chance to express themselves uh, as much as they need to. Yeah, and that's always been sort of a thing for me, being part intellectual but part sensory processing, sort of wild child, you know. I remember coming home off the bus and the first thing I would do honestly was take off all my clothes and like stretch and dance around and roll around. I just, and I used to have to wear those blue jeans back then that didn't stretch. Do you Uh, remember how blue jeans used to not stretch? Yeah. Yeah. So I would have to, my mom would make me wear these high-waisted blue jeans to school and I'd just be sitting in there and, and it would just be sort of suffocating me. Yeah. And I would just daydream. I was a daydreamer, and I would just couldn't wait until I could get home and be outside or get the jeans off. So, how, how many kids do you think are diagnosed with like ADHD or maybe even depression, but really have like uh, they're just overloaded um, uh, sensorily? Sens- <laughs> yeah. yeah, you know what I'm trying to say, um, because. I myself am, am an introvert, and and I've noticed that like I have these introvert hangovers where if I'm in a crowded or loud area for too long, uh, it's just too much. I, I give myself two hours at any party, any public before I'm like I gotta go because I, I just know like that's my max. Um, but do do you do you think that? a lot of kids are being diagnosed with ADHD when really it's something else, like just not getting outside enough or they are overstimulated. Yeah, I definitely think that that's sort of one of the conversations that's going on in psychology today is that the system, it's it's also something that I talk to with parents whenever I meet with them, They can have perfectly bright children who have every ability to succeed but have this sort of one thing. And a lot of times it's kind of if if the kids are able, if the parents are able to provide alternate schooling for their kids or working with their particular personality, then that's always something that we try to do. Because I think that we do have a system But unfortunately, the way that the world works is that we all have to learn how to, every single one of us, have to learn how to sort of fit into that system in some way in which we're able. And that's part of all of our paths and being successful members of society is that we all have our role to play. And so I do think that 
that it is definitely a thing. And I think that depending on the parents and the child's ability to create different structures, there's a lot that can be done with that. But yes, unfortunately, our system in schools is usually going and sitting in a chair for seven, eight hours and learning how to be able to do that in whichever way we can without having to get written up or go to the principal's office or... Yeah, you know, I love those. Every now and again, you'd have that teacher that would take you outside during class. And it was just like such a completely different energy. You know, you're sitting in a circle. Every Like you're you're actually more attentive. You're you're more engaged. Um, Yeah, and I I understand like it snows in some places. You know, we're in L.A. where you can do that year round and not everybody has that luxury. But like you said, there's these tiny ways ahead. I had an ecotherapist on, um, I, I, f- I think in the first 10 sessions or 10 episodes, and he talked about how in college he thought it was strange that they're learning about mental health, but they're in these concrete classrooms. And he's like, this is the most unhealthiest environment to learn in, you know? And so he would bring a tiny little plant and put it on his desk. Uh, every day to kind of bring like the outdoors inside. And he's like, it just made such a little difference, you know, and everybody talked to the plant and things like that. Um, can you talk to us, because we haven't even really gotten into w- what is ecotherapy and how does it differ from the other types of therapy? Yeah, so actually for me, I come into the ecotherapy world through the Jungian school. So I'm mainly a Jungian therapist who spends a lot of her time in nature and through my roots, through my grandfather, like trying to develop and sort of involve nature and the dialogue with nature into my life and also work with my clients to do that. So the history of ecotherapy, it's not, it's a relatively new, that's funny to say that it's new because nature's been here, right. (laughs) Nature's been here forever, but that, that is sort of, I would be more inclined to speak about the Jungian which is depth psychology, which is paying attention to nature. It's paying attention to our inner worlds. It's paying attention to the way that our inner meets our outer. So I could probably keep going, but I'm wondering what, if you have any questions about that so far, if I could go in a certain way. Well, well, let's tie it back into what you were talking about earlier. When you were talking about um, dealing with grief and dealing with anger because uh, so many people are dealing with it or have dealt with grief, have dealt with anger, have dealt with loss, whether it's a relationship or job or what have you. What would be the Jungian uh, perspective on that? Yeah, so the Jungian perspective in in those times of grief or mourning or sort of stillness that can also be translated as depression would be kind of all embracive. So the Jungian approach is to acknowledge that it exists and not necessarily fight and do everything you can get out of it, 
you can do to get out of it, but to be in it and sort of honor it as a cycle of life and to see what value is, is there. You, you know what? It, and that kind of ties into what we were talking about earlier in that nature is everywhere, right? Like you don't have to go out to find in. I, I think that made sense. Um, and so, but the same thing here is that, you know, when, when we're angry, when we're emotional, when we're heightened, we think we're looking for something outside of us to fix it, whether it's a pill, whether it's uh, sex or food or television, when really it's in the anger lies the answer, right? But that's easier said than done, right? To sit in the anger because, I mean, you was beating up some dough. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> um, but, but that was a healthy way to channel that emotion, right? Uh, so how do we, how do we sit in, like, all right, I'm, all right, I'm sitting here, I'm sitting in it, and, and then what, because there have been times where, like, I'm driving, and then, you know, thoughts start to pop up and feelings, and I'm like, oh, I, ca I can't wait, to, I got to get out this car, you know? Um, so how do, we, how do we sit in it? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's the big question, right? I think that, so the Jungian way is to be really entrenched in shadow. It's what they call shadow or be interested or acknowledge shadow as a part of life, as a balance. There's, there's consciousness, there's unconsciousness. There's consciousness and there's subconsciousness. And so acknowledging it, right, which would be the grief or the anger is, is one part, giving it space and acknowledging it as having a right to exist, as having a right to be there just as much as the light or the joy. And then that's whenever the techniques come into place, which is why whenever I talk to you, I say that I like to incorporate incorporate eco-psychology. I like to incorporate mindfulness. Those aren't necessarily fully Jungian, but then there's also Jungian techniques. And so, but the one thing that I really heard that you said is sort of having a choice on the way you channel it. I would say that's one of the whole goals about being a successful human integrated in society would be honor the wild woman or man inside, but choose to do this. Acknowledge that you're angry, but choose to sort of funnel it in this way. And in Jungian psychology, I mean, over here we have a sand tray, which is one of the ways in which we can sort of listen to what the unconscious is saying. So there's all these practices in Jungian psychology to listen to the unconscious so that hopefully you can hear what it has to say before you get to a level of depression or before you get to the point where you're wanting to quit your job and yelling at everyone while you're running out the door. And so these ways are, there's sand trays, there's art. Um, like I wrote my thesis on art and symbolism, which is all about looking at sort of those messages that our unconscious is trying to give. This is sort of a really big uh, ocean that we've just dropped into this world. I, I'm excited. Let's go. I got my scuba gear. You know, I, I'm scuba certified. 
We're just going to go slow so we, we make sure we don't, uh, what is it called when you go down too fast or come up too fast? Oh, yeah. Um, hype. Not having this word, but it's pressure. Pressure. But, uh, but so let's unpack a couple things yes. that, that I'm excited about that you said. Um, and then my brain just went blank just now. It happens uh, to me all the time. <laughs> Ask my clients. <laughs> Um, but let's, I, first of all, this sand tray, cause I'm looking at a sand tray right now. This is incredible. Oh, the shadow side. That's what I want to talk about. The, I, cause there's so much right now on social media in the world about just be calm, be nice. Only, only good vibes wanted here. And I, I think that by not acknowledging that anger is as much of a part of who we are as love, joy, excitement, um, uh, you know, uh, all these other happiness, um, that uh, we are then won't be able to express the, those emotions because you can't suppress the, the shadow side and then think you can express the, the bright side. I don't know if he has a name for the, the other side. but um, And we do that in relationships also where we just want the good parts of the other person and we don't want to have give space to the other, your partner's anger or sadness or despair or overwhelm or whatever they're feeling. We just want to fix it and, and, and push it off to the side and, and get moving forward. Um, so I think that's a powerful thing that you said right there where you said, when it comes to our emotions, if we don't learn how to give our emotion space, whether it's anger, despair, fear, insecurity, anxiety, then it's going to be hard for us to do that for other people. And then it makes it hard for you to be in a sustainable relationship, I would think. There's a domino effect of not acknowledging and giving space to all of your emotions. Yeah, that was, there was so many things in what you just said too that I sort of hooked on to. And two of the big ones are, first of all, 10 years ago when I was 25 and I came to the Young Institute, I came to the Young Institute because I felt really isolated alone having moved to LA, living in a society, being around sort of a good vibe society that wasn't acknowledging, or at least I felt that way, anger when I have a past history that includes trauma made me feel really isolated and alone. So I ended up finding my way to the Young Institute and kind of finding a home there because they were acknowledging that shadow exists, anger get, exists. There is a sort of thing called a righteous anger, which helps make change happen. And if people would just sublimate that through art therapy, all their righteous anger, there's so many things in the world that wouldn't have changed. So that's the first part of, of what I'm thinking when you say that. And then the second part is in partnership. I often say that you want to find someone who your shadows get along better than your brightnesses. 
because things can be really fun and really great whenever we're in our best mood and our sort of best selves. But how does that person deal with disappointment? How does that person deal with feeling insecure? How does that person deal with anger? And when your shadows get along, it's sort of, I don't want to say that life is more fun and playful, but it kind of is. You know, when you have a partner where your shadows get along, it's sort of harder to trigger each other in really, really frightening ways because that person goes in their shadow space and your shadow gets it or understand it and has more of a compassion. It's, it's, or you can play in sort of shadowy ways that aren't dangerous or harmful, but fun. I, I, so I've been in relationships with people who are uh, Machiavellian. They have a their, their shadow is very Machiavellian, and uh, and I know that I suppress that side of me, and so when I'm around people who are Machiavellian, oh, I soak it up. And I and I love feeding that dark side, that dark energy. And you know, uh, like if there's a natural disaster, they're like, they should all. I'm like, yeah, they should all. It, you know, it's just it's just so fun to like express and give into that that side. Um, so I understand what you mean by when your shadows complement each other. Like you can you can feed each other's shadow side versus being afraid of their shadow side or being harmed by it. But can you give us specific examples of that or like what that would look like? I'm trying to think of specifically, I'm thinking more of sort of the way that the compassion works in that piece. So there definitely is a playfulness And, okay, so specific examples that I can think of are just as simple. We can do a very simple one. One person really likes to drink but isn't an alcoholic but loves to to drink, and the other person doesn't drink at all. So there's probably going to be in that relationship there would be a lot of probably strife and difficulty between the person who doesn't drink at all being afraid of the person who drinks. Maybe the person who doesn't drink is because of alcoholism that has run in their family or what they've witnessed. Whereas the person who does drink has an enjoyment from that sort of Dionysian self. And so that's gonna be a very, could potentially be a very conflictual relationship. And that's a very black and white specific example. There's a lot more nuances than that, but can you can you talk about then how that how that complements you like how because you talk because you you mentioned how like there could be strife but then how would that how would those those two things get along the compassion yeah, uh, yeah. so you mean of the person who drinks and the person who doesn't Absolutely. drink so the way that it could get along in well that's in this specific example it's a little harder to make like a concrete uh, parallel but I almost even see there could be more there could potentially be more conflict with with the with the shadow self but potentially depending on the person's relationship their conscious relationship to their shadow the person who doesn't drink could potentially really enjoy the mood or the environment that the other person puts them in 
and really sort of get that enjoyment out of it without drinking, going to specific types of places, being a little bit more rowdy or a little bit more introspective, however that sort of plays itself out. But the biggest the biggest point is the relationship of the individual's unconscious unconsciousness, their relationship to their shadow and their relationship to sort of their consciousness or their ego. And and that's where that's where the Jungians get really into knowing those parts of yourself so that if someone comes up to you, th- this is kind of going off on a tangent, but let's say someone comes up to you and says, oh, you really like to drink. And you're like, I do. I do like to drink. And I also know that it's not a problem because I'm open to it being a problem. Right? And that's having sort of a, a good relationship with the shadow in a very, I'm, I'm aware that talking about drinking as an example could, could really floor some people, but it's just a No, metaphor. I think it's such a great example because, I mean, a lot of people drink. And, and I know a lot of people who are in relationships where, uh, and I know exactly what you're talking about, where I have friends who one person doesn't drink and the other person does. Um, and the person who doesn't drink loves the situations, as you said, that the person who does drink puts them in so you know it's like it, they love to be in these social situations but they love to be with somebody that they feel connected to in the social situations they don't like to be a stranger in social situations uh, but the problem arises not from the drinking but then if the person who drinks drinks too much like there's a there's a limit to you know because uh, usually the person who doesn't drink is maybe more of an introvert, you know, loves books more than people, whatever. And so there's a certain time where the person who doesn't drink is ready to go. And the person who does drink wants to stay. So I think, it, you know, that's where it becomes about, like, managing expectations and, and, uh, and finding a way to, to navigate around the extremes of not drinking versus drinking, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so, yeah, I, I definitely see that that happened, uh, I think a lot of couples are together like that, where I, I, I had a friend who, she'd been married for 20 or 30 years, and her husband had been sober for 10 or 15 years. And her whole mission was to get him to start drinking again, because she's like, he's not fun anymore, and he's judging me while I drink. So I think that's the other side of it, is the person who doesn't drink and the person... If that person who doesn't drink makes sure that they're not judging the person who does drink or make them feel bad for who they are and the person who's drinking doesn't judge the person who, like that type of, because then that can be complimentary. It's like, this is who you are, I accept you for that and I accept you for this, but we need to manage kind of the, how long are we out for? You know, how many drinks, you know, as long as you're not landing in jail or causing fights that kind of thing yeah that's the that's the beauty of this metaphor is as simplistic as it in a way is you know not drinking too much not getting put in jail that simple representation represents something much bigger in the way that we relate to ourselves so so the and that's what I had mentioned before our relationship with our own shadow our acknowledgement that exists, our uh, being able to 
conversate with it is the part of us that says, okay, I have this Dionysian side. I see you and I'm going to work with you to be able to exist in the world in this way, but not to the detriment of the health of myself or the health of my family or the people that I love. And a lot of times there's this sort of cut offness from the shadow. You like not wanting to see it, not wanting to acknowledge that it exists and giving it no space or room to be. And that would be, that would then usually come into play kind of as what Jungians call a complex, which is, it's like a feeling toned cluster of emotions and thoughts and actions that are autonomous. So they have their own life. And, and obviously these are just, I always say these are just metaphors. They're ways for us to understand things that happen to us sort of through story or through a definition. But they're, they're kind of, they're experiences. They're not, they're not actual desks or tables, you know. Right. They're not actual things, but these metaphors are what we use to describe them. But the person who doesn't have the relationship with their shadow self might have a shadow self that still exists, that's not being looked at, that's trying to be ignored, that kind of takes over the person time and time again, and the person feels helpless to their own actions or behaviors. And that's the, that's the interplay of relationship and... If you know that you have a complex and your partner knows it and you can speak that language to each other, when you're feeling like you're in a certain space, you can let your partner know and they can be more sort of kind or understanding or compassionate or ask what you need to kind of help you out of it. I don't know if I just went a whole No, no, I completely get it because otherwise what happens if we don't acknowledge um, – our shadow side, our dark selves, um, then what happens is we become defensive when someone points it out, right? Instead of saying, you know, if somebody goes, oh, you're a little insecure, you know, most people go, I'm not insecure, I'm, I'm independent, I'm strong, I'm blah, blah, blah. And it's like, you know what? Yeah, a part of me is insecure. A part of me is a little, uh, I'm, I'm a little afraid, I'm going through a few transitions right now, I have this going on. So if you're not aware of your underlying um, uh, wiring or, or, or settings, then you become defensive and you try to, we put walls up around the parts of us that we think make us vulnerable when really it's in being aware of it, acknowledging it, and then being able to articulate it that um, we actually are, uh, you have more confidence because now somebody can't take that away from you and you can't, be triggered by it, right? That's what we're trying to do is we're trying to protect you. It's, it's the nine-year-old who gets triggered and it's like, nah, it's okay to, it's all right to be anxious or fearful or angry or to grieve or to cry, things like that. Yeah, exactly. It's sort of, I have this discussion with clients all the time about boundaries. So like, let's say that someone's a people pleaser and so underlying they feel bad if they don't do what someone else wants them to do, even if they don't have the time or the bandwidth or the space or any of that to do it. And so instead of, you know, the person saying to the client, hey, I need you to do this, instead of the client be coming back and saying, 
oh man, I would love to do that. I just can't. I ha- I don't have the space. I, you know, not even that many excuses, but just, I really wish I could do that. I would love to be able to do that. And I just can't. And if the person pushes more being like, I really, I really can't. I'm sorry. Like I would love to, I have to go. But the, but the people pleaser, the person comes up and says, Hey, I need you to do this. And the people pleaser gets angry and defensive and has all these excuses and all these reasons and gets mad at the other person for even asking them to do anything. And, and so that's exactly, that's another way of talking about what you were just saying. It's if you can acknowledge that this is something I can or cannot do, or this is a space I'm in or I'm not, and we can see that and leave space for all options, then we don't have to be defensive. I don't know. Did that connect? Absolutely, because I'm a huge people pleaser, and I'm getting better at saying, uh, using exactly the words you, you use, where I don't have the bandwidth for this right now, but I, what the piece that I've, I'm practicing on adding on is, uh, get back to me in three months, you know? So I'm putting it on them versus me saying, I'll get back to you. It's like, no, I'm not going to remember a week from now. I got enough on my plate right now, but if it really matters to you and you get back to me at this preset time, then I will give it time. Because a lot of times people make demands on you about things they don't even care about or they're hoping that you'll pick the slack up on. And, at, you know, at 43, I'm starting to realize that where, you know, before I was like, yeah, I'll do it. And then I'm saying yes to a million things. I don't know why everything is by the million. But um, and it's like when really I, I got enough things uh, on my plate. So, yeah, just to, to set those boundaries. What you, you, you've mentioned, I have two questions. Okay. One is I'm going to ask them both and then you can pick whatever. How many do, are there names for the different shadows? One, and then two, you mentioned Dionysus. Dionysia, Dio, Dionysus. Is she from? Is she from Long Beach? Who was? <laughs> I felt. I felt like I went to school with a girl. She. She took my lunch money. Uh, but who? And then yeah, then you talk about the Dionysus. Di, Dio. So names for the shadows. So that's a really great question. So there is. So the the there's a, there's so many words that want to come out of my mouth at the same time. Let's vomit it all out. <laughs> so that would be sort of the if we look through different cultures. So if we look through Greek culture, African, Yoruba, um, they they have all these different deities for different flows of energy, actually. So um, Dionysus is actually a Greek god, and he's the Greek god of sort of wine and music and debauchery, and people who followed Dionysus would go have these big parties and sort of let the feelings overtake them. And so that's that's Dionysus, and it's a Greek god. Um, There's a lot of cultures that have these different sort of gods, multi, it's like a polytheistic. So polytheistic religions, many gods. So most cultures were sort of polytheistic even before there's really names for polytheism or names for all the gods. It's like, oh, there's a god in the corn and there's a god in the sky. And, and, 
Jungians work with this sort of thought that there's that we have polytheistic mind. So instead of this sort of sterile Western perspective that we are of one mind, so when we make a decision, 100% of ourselves is behind that decision and we don't want anything else. And so therefore, nothing can get in the way of that decision, right? That seems to be a, a contemporary thought behind a lot of things and a lot of big things too, including marriage, right? Where there's different parts of self that want different things. And so, and so this polytheistic mind... I wouldn't necessarily say that all the different parts are shadows. I would say that some of the parts can be shadows if we don't acknowledge them and make room for them. And so that sort of goes back to the to the gopher marmot thing. <laughs> it's like some uh, complexes can be shadows for us individually, but that doesn't mean that all complexes are shadows, gotcha. if that makes sense. Absolutely. And so it's, yeah, it's all about giving space for all the players at our table. Um, I always like to use sort of a knights of a round table metaphor with my clients. And there, you start to identify the different parts of yourself that have different voices that come from different things. And, and being able to listen to yourself and your different desires at once and talk to those desires at once and sort of negotiate within yourself for a higher good keeps from some of these acting outs, if that makes sense. Yeah, it completely makes sense. I have <laughs> my cousin, um, I, and I haven't talked to her in a while, so I forget, but she has three selves. And she'll, she'll talk to you. She'll be like, you know, like, uh, Tina, Tina is, you know, gets the work done and she's, she's polite. But she's like, Tanisha, T Tanisha is going to set this place on fire. And then she's like, then there's a third, I forget who the third name is. But she, is, she has a clear vision of who each person is and, and what their purpose is. And I think that a lot of us, like you said, are, are, we have these multiple selves. Um, Robert Greene, I'm sure have you studied Robert Greene at all? Um, Robert Greene, he's written 48 Laws of Power, Art of Seduction, uh, Art of War of Art, or Art of, Art of War, um, and recently, uh, The Laws of Human Nature. And the underlying theme is he talks about the shadow side also in his books, but he, he talks about it using historical references, whether it's Leonardo da Vinci or Napoleon, um, he's one of my favorite authors. He just delves deep into the the history of uh, of of people and societies and cultures, and ties it into uh, today and what we see. But he's always talking about the shadow side and and and, uh, and things like that. But he, why did I bring him up? How did that? My brain was going to a million places, and I. Oh, but so going back to my cousin, it's like, yeah, we have these multiple selves and and you you have to know like like there's a self of who you are when you're with a client and then who you are in your relationship and who you are as a parent and recognize you have to put these multiple hats on. Some people stay the same, 
throughout, no matter what they're, and we, we usually call them stars or crazy or where they just like, they just who they are and they're just that all the time. Uh, but, uh, but those people are, are fascinating. But a lot of us, you know, we do wear multiple hats and uh, we're not always aware of uh, how we show up. But is there, is there a realm where they all integrate? Where like you just is, because, you know, there's also like that integrative self where you're kind of the same no matter where you are or is it just by environment? I don't know if that question makes sense. Yeah, I mean, from what I take from the question is that I don't know if there's a location right. specifically in the outer world, mm -hmm. but in the inner world, Jungians would call that the self with a capital S, like the true self, that that part of you that can sort of see all the different parts of yourself and and kind of integrate or work with them or that that sort of thing. And that's an inner world thing because I think it would be hard to create that sort of outer world environment. It's sort of like all the different types of nature, you need different gear. Yeah. You know, and that would be the different aspects of your personality, the gear that come out to, you know, camp camp on the mountain or camp on the beach, you know. Mm, gear. So, you know, gear. I like that metaphor because <laughs> it's kind of, you know, like driving. Like there's different gears that you have to put the car in depending on the environment, the the traffic. Are you on the street? Are you on the highway like um and then but but you were talking about gear in terms of what do you need for the beach versus climbing here it's and it's almost like who do you need to be to survive adapt and thrive in the environment that you're in versus saying this is who i am but it's like who you are may not be suitable for where you are so you need to figure out what parts of yourself that you need to bring out so that you can thrive in the environment. Yeah, and that metaphor actually can go kind of more meta into what we started this conversation yeah, with meta. about <laughs> <laughs> about, you know, the difference between being in the city and needing to get out of the city, right? Well, if we sort of understand that we can adapt from environment to environment and bring different gear, but we don't lose our core self with the capital S, then potentially we feel more intact in all situations instead of outside of ourselves. And that's the same like we were talking before about walking out of your apartment and thinking, oh, this is the city and I need to get out to be happy in nature or this is trash so I'm going to throw it away somewhere else. Well, in this whole conversation, you know, I guess that the sort of where the trash goes, that's also nature. And so if the trash, where the trash goes, that would be the shadow self. So if I'm stepping on the street and I'm saying, well, I'm going to leave the shadow self, not all parts of me are going to come along. That's different than having an inner experience of, you know, keeping my trash on me and giving the pineapple to the worms, right? So it's integrated within myself instead of throwing it away somewhere else and not looking at it. And so in that way, we're sort of giving aeration and light to the trash, the dumps. We're composting ourselves. Yeah, because in the dump... <laughs> I love it. 
Look, look at how I wow. did that, people. This is this the is 360. Good. That's what we do. That was good. Oh, um, I see that you have some notes written down. I I have a few notes just because I didn't know if they would come up, and I thought they're nice things to know. I could just read them to you. Yeah, let, let's see what you got down there. I'm, I'm curious. So, I do have a note about. Nature and the Human Soul, which is a book by Bill Plotkin. Okay. So this is a really incredible book. Bill Plotkin is an eco-psychologist. He entered it through depth psychology like me. And he was, I believe, a depth psychologist for 25 years before he wrote this book. And this book relates sort of the human life cycle with with nature, and so it does kind of what we were doing when we were trying to bring in a 360 and bring it around to composting the self. He, he does that in a really elegant, beautiful way with lots of diagrams and looking at the cycles of nature and the cycles of being human and, you know, from a baby to an old age and sort of what you kind of want to accomplish in those cycles. And he does a really beautiful way of comparing it. I'll put that in the show notes also. Yeah, nature it's beautiful. And then the other one was this, there's this book for people who specifically are in Southern California. It's called The New Wild Crafted Cuisine by this guy, Pascal Bunder. And this was a new book that recently came into my life from a friend of mine who, she's sort of um, an herb woman. She has been helping me get re-in-touch with the, the flora of LA and this sort of desert environment because like I told you I would go and walk to my grandfather in Missouri but LA has so much more and so this book is all about finding things in this terrain that we currently live in to make food make things that we can eat and so I've been learning slowly about how to do that, which is very eco-psychology, very empowering. And if someone knows that they're feeling, if they're feeling a little bit helpless in their life, and then suddenly they learn this information that allows them to go on a hike, you know, in Santa Monica Mountains and find something to come back and make a bread from, it's like, so empowering and so big on all these different ways. And that's exactly what my friend Olivia has helped me do is do that exact thing. So it's, it's a big, big empowering. If you can do that, then, you know, I get, cause I get lost all the time when I go hiking and every time when I ran out of food, I took my sister hiking once on a three hour hike. She never hikes and I didn't bring any food and we almost died. And, uh, and, and every time I go hiking, I'm like, I wish I knew what to eat out here. And I know they have apps, but, you know, you're in a place where there's no Wi-Fi. So that, that's useless. Uh, so I'm going to definitely pick up that book also. It's a really heavy book, though. So <laughs> okay, I'll, I don't I just know. Won't take it with me on a hike. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so. And all right, so, um, in terms of, uh, you know, because one of the reasons why I started this podcast is, to help people struggling uh, with suicidal ideation, uh, some people, some listeners have attempted, some uh, have thought about it. Um, what's the Jungian perspective on that? 
or I, I don't know if I'm asking the right question there, but you know, if somebody comes to you, is it to go into art? Is it going to nature? What? How are we uh, getting into that? Yeah. So for me, it's hard for me to speak in this question from you know specifically the Jungian perspective because okay. I don't want to speak for all of my okay. teachers all right. You're, and well, how, how, but mine. Yes. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so I think that the big thing would be to get connected to someone who's reliable. And that's one of the reasons why therapy exists. And that goes back to another myth. I believe it's about Ariadne, but it's been a long time about this sort of connecting by this red thread. And when I first came to the Young Institute, when I was 25, there wasn't a lot of connections that I had in my life. I was newly transplanted to this place. My partner and I didn't weren't together anymore. In a lot of ways, I feel like an orphan in this world. And so I needed to find a way to start to connect myself by this sort of red thread to other people. Um, because that thread is sort of the thing, it's... It's a spiritual thing. It's hard to sort of concretize in words or metaphor, but when we're connected by a red thread or like that metaphor of the red thread to another person, it gives us more reason of being. If a human isn't connected to anybody or anything, then that's whenever I think our soul sorts of wonders why we're in this place. This place isn't my home. You know, why am I here? And so that could be a therapist. It doesn't have to be. Um, but can like trying to forge that first connection is, I think, the most important. And then, you know, the other things are uniquely every individual. But the one big thing I'd say is that I've seen people be suicidal because they have their life built up a certain way and they don't feel like they can do that life anymore, but they, they see that there's no way out. You know, there's no quitting this certain job. There's no telling my partner that we can't have these things. There's no leaving my partner. And so basically they see that there's all these shut doors. They're all locked, padlocked. There's no way out. And I would have to say that you have to learn sort of a radical living, meaning that if it's, if it's leaving your job and losing the whole life you've ever known, that has to become an option for you. If it's never working a nine to five because your soul is screaming to be in the earth, that has to be an option to you at any cost. Right. And for me and for some of my clients, I've seen that, you know, it becomes a lot easier once you've made the first steps, which obviously having support through therapy can help you do. But once you make the first steps and you've you've at any cost left things or changed things, it becomes a lot easier to do that for the rest of your life. So then that suicidal ideation, that place that you were in, it actually becomes further and further away from your reality once you've gotten out of it. Because I know there's another fear with people who are severely depressed or people who have suicidal ideation that it's always lurking there and it's going to come back. But once you've learned how to 
open doors that you thought you couldn't open, that you thought were slammed shut and padlocked, then then your way of life becomes more sustainable to you when you learn that that's a thing you can do. You can quit the job. You can leave that person. You can, whatever it is, tell your mom this thing or all these things that you think that are impossible. Does that make that sense? That makes so much sense. There's a uh, there's a um, an Indian tribe. I don't know if they still exist, but they would uh, pack everything up and move to a, an entirely different location every 20 years. And the reason for that was they felt like if they stayed in one place, even if it was resource rich, that then the next generation coming up would be lazy because they would have everything that they needed and wouldn't know how to hunt, wouldn't know how to take care of themselves, wouldn't know how to, uh, you know, um, raise crops and, and um, you know, just all the, you know, the, the physical and mental stimulation that comes from being in a new environment. And you talk about radical living, like, you know, it's like to, to say, hey, we're, we got everything we need here, but we're going to start all over somewhere else just for the sake of starting all over somewhere else because we, we know what can happen if we stay here too long. The next generation won't uh, thrive and their skills won't be as sharp as, uh, as ours are. The ways will be lost. Also in that metaphor, that's, that's exactly what happens to some people. The next generation becomes very tied to the specific crop, right? And they don't know how to do any other crops and any other terror, right? Uh, terrain, terror. And so they lose that crop, then they become depressed. They don't know where to go. They don't know how to move. They don't know what to do. They don't know how to feed themselves. And so that happens to us in our lives. We become so attached, are so configured. We have debts. We have loans. We have all these things that keep us tied to a very specific way of being. But then we lose one thing. And that's usually when depression comes is we're very tied to a very specific way that, that life should be. And then when it when that thing is taken away, we don't have the resources or the mental agility or the physical agility to adapt to the new cir circumstance. And so it, that's okay, but we kind of need, you know, if we're a tribe that never leaves, we need the, the person from the adaptable tribe to come and show us how to do that. So. The, yeah, they, when they, they show, um, they talk about ants. And like you know, when you, if you look at ants, most 99% of the ants are doing what they're supposed to do. They're in a nice little formation, back and forth. But then you'll see these rogue ants who are just venturing off, and they look lazy, like they're trying to escape work. But really, the rogue ants are necessary because what happens when the ant colony becomes destroyed through flooding, or you know, man comes in and whatever, is the rogue ants who then have found another place to set up another colony because they're the ones who are just wandering off and exploring new terrain. So it makes it easier for the ants to relocate. So, you know, we need that in society. So those, you know, if you have kids and, and they want to go overseas or go away to college or go do, like, let them go because they're going to gather information that they can then bring back to feed the tribe or improve the tribe or mankind or whatever. But it's, yeah, so. That's actually so interesting because 
and I actually can't quote this specifically, but there's a huge there's a huge idea from Carl Jung about that specific thing, which is you need those people in society who are going to go off and who are going to make the discoveries, but that those people are only useful whenever they come back and give back. So the point of being an artist or being an intellectual or being a rogue isn't to do it for yourself. It's to find the information and bring it back to other people. And so that's actually a huge thing of Carl Jung's. He and I, I hate like putting it into such 21st century words and my own words, but my interpretation of it is that uh, you're not useful going off unless you're willing to bring back what you've discovered. It's not just for you, it's for society. Um, and that's exactly those rogue ants, which is a great, a great metaphor. I often think about, and, and you know, I know Christopher Columbus did a lot of uh, atrocious things but it was all in the name of bringing something back to the queen, bringing something back to Spain. You know, I mean, he was going out for some incense. He was trying to pick up some paprika, you know, and uh, some other things happened, as we know. But, um, but, but, that, but when you're doing it for a bigger purpose, it can drive you and it can motivate you and it can keep you um, uh, pushing towards those goalposts. Uh, when we know that uh, we're we're doing it for a bigger a bigger good, is there anything else that you wanted to share? Um, no, I mean, I think I'm feeling good. There's just, I think that I have a quote. It's written on the bottom of all my emails, which is by Young, which says, "Real consciousness has to be based on life experienced. Just talking about things is not enough." And that's on, it's on my little footer on my emails. And it's sort of the one thing that I'd have to say is that, you know, the therapeutic relationship has a lot of benefit in going into the inner worlds, but we do need to physically learn how to connect ourselves to um, experiences in order to get the experiential consciousness about what it is to be living. And so that's sort of the last bit about suicidal ideation or um, depression or whatever it is. Our minds are tricky things. They've adapted to really help us, but our minds have the ability to think through all the outcomes that could happen if you do this one thing. So you could be talking with your therapist and you can decide that, decide, sorry, my voice kind of got lost. You can decide that you're supposed to go on a walk every day, right? But your mind is sort of like, well, if I go on a walk every day, this is exactly what's going to happen. Nothing's going to change. And so I'm not going to do it. And so this quote really encompasses, and Jung, Jung was, was a very famous psychologist who understood the limitations of just the inner world and, and talking and, and the actual doingness, the simple things that can completely change our our mental and interior landscape, like me baking bread, right? So simple, and it could completely change things. And it's so easy for our mind to forget that nuance, right? And that's actually why man first started creating art, was to kind of make physical what was inside the self, make physical to communicate with God. And so this whole sort of making physical piece is a huge is a huge thing that we need more 
in our lives. If my clients, I think my clients kind of are starting to get, get an idea of how much time I spend hiking. <laughs> and, and it's like my friends will say, hey, you're so, you know, doesn't it get to you hearing all this heavy stuff, all this trauma? And it's sort of maybe if I didn't spend so many hours out, it would get to me more but it doesn't, but that's sort of that, that bit where that's what I have to do. You know, other people are like, how do you go on three hour hikes almost every day? Well, I have to, does that make sense? Absolutely. When I, when I go hike, when I, uh, cause sometimes I, I'm doing shows in Vegas and you know, Vegas is such a loud cacophony of everything. Uh, but you know, not far Red Rocks and those hiking. So I, I make it a point to go hiking every day so that, uh, you know, to escape all the, the loud and the, the, the noise and the bright lights of, of Vegas. And it's the only way I can be in Vegas is to, to know that I'm going to have these few hours out in nature and, you know, and you just feel connected. There's It's so strange how you can be in your hotel room or in your room and feel lonely but when you're out in nature by yourself, there's there's not a sound to be heard, and and no one no one to be seen, and you feel a thousand a million times. We're gonna stick with a million, a million times more connected uh, out there in nature when uh, when there's there's no one else around. So yeah, uh, uh, it definitely clears out your mind and makes you realize like whatever you were worried about. Like these, like when you see the birds flying, you're like, these birds don't care about my car payment or <laughs> <laughs> or my breakup. Like this tree doesn't give a damn. Like this tree's seen it all, you know, and it's still here, you know. So uh, you know, when I'm out in nature, it just kind of reminds me of that, and uh, you know, you just keep going. Marie, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I have a question I ask of everybody on the episode. Uh, last one is always feel like there's someone listening who may be on a cusp of completing suicide, before you kill yourself, what would you say to that person? Reach out to someone. Try to make that connection. That it's, it's all about, you know, there's no purpose kind of in a lot of ways of having this realm of experience unless we're connected to something that's here so i love it get connected uh, we spend so much time trying to connect our cell phones and ipads and we forget to connect ourselves uh to each other or to a purpose or something something bigger thank you so much where can people find you if somebody wants to work with you come see you get some therapy What's the website? So the website is marietherapies.com. So M-A-R-I-E, therapies. And that's it. Fantastic. Thank you for listening in. Remember, this uh, podcast is not a substitute for you going to get therapy or for calling the 1-800-SUICIDE number, which I think they're going to change to uh, 988 pretty soon. They're going to change it to a three-digit number which uh, I'm excited about because I know a lot of people don't know how to spell suicide. <laughs> a lot of people using two S's out there. Um, and uh, so talk to someone, get connected. Thank you for tuning in, and we will talk to you soon.